to be with you here on the Sunday Show podcast. We talked about expanding transit in Metro Vancouver with BRT, what you do with the data gap in tracing COVID-19, and we talked about exploding batteries in e-bikes. Metro Vancouver's transit agency has made a network of bus rapid transit routes a key priority over the next 10 years. It's an effort to accommodate increasing public demand for better transit in a very sprawling region while also having to control those costs. Joining us is TransLink Mayor's Council Chair and Mayor of New Westminster, Jonathan Cote. Good morning, good morning, Mr. Cote. Well, good morning and thanks for having me on the show. So bus rapid Transit, or BRT. It's something we haven't tried here before. Mr. Cote, can you explain what BRT is? Yeah, well, it's, it's definitely a, a new concept to, to the Metro Vancouver region, but it's, it's not a, a new concept world, worldwide. Uh, really, it's, it's, it's looking at things like a, a rapid transit, which in our region we have SkyTrain, but actually doing it in a form that, uh, that actually uses buses but on dedicated rights-of-ways and, and with facilities and stations that are, are very much like what we'd expect in, in, a, in a SkyTrain station. Uh, the main advantage of that compared to SkyTrain is it's significantly more, more cost-effective to, to be able to, to, to build. And is it uh, a bus or is it more like an overground type of thing? Yeah, so it, w- it would actually be, be a bus. Having said that, it may not look like the traditional bus, and it certainly is not a service like the traditional bus service uh, we, we have here in, in, in Metro Vancouver. Um, in, in many cases, it's, uh, it, 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 it's actually a, a bus that, that, that actually looks like a, like, a, like a SkyTrain. If you look at the bus rapid transit in, in Brisbane, Australia, you probably look at the buses and go, is, is, that, a, is that a train or is that a bus? So it, it, it very much is different than what, uh, what you would traditionally think of as, uh, as, as, as traditional bus service. But the main advantage is it moves people almost as quickly as, as what we've come to expect with, with SkyTrain. So it's, uh, it's, not, uh, it, it's quite a bit different than you know, what our region is, is used to when we think of bus service. Okay, I think you mentioned Melbourne there. Is that uh, a very similar system that we would be aiming for? Or is there another city system that we can picture in our minds that would be similar to BRT here? Yeah, well, you know, there's there's a number of systems uh, around the world. Uh, you know, uh, Ottawa is, is probably a Canadian example that has uh, has used bus rapid transit uh, quite quite effectively. Uh, the original one actually comes from from Bogota in, in Colombia, uh, there where they uh, you know really you know kind of were uh, were leaders in, in in putting bus rapid transit there um, there. So there there are a number of examples around around the world, and uh, you know I think Metro Vancouver needs to take time to kind of learn. Uh, you know some of the different options and learn where the successes are and learn where some of the challenges are in, in, in other parts of the world in implementing this kind of transit. Okay, I read that uh, it's $15 million a kilometer, which sounds like a lot, but then you look at a SkyTrain type of line and that's pegged at $400 million a kilometer. And this one wouldn't have to fight with regular traffic. So I'm wondering why why we haven't done BRT already, and and also actually why should we be doing it now? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I think uh, our, our region is not not familiar with it, and you know, we're having lots of conversations this past week, and I expect lots of conversations in the in the years to come to to really help familiarize uh, the region with with bus rapid transit and and and, and why it can really. Uh, you know, be of the quality that uh, that that we need in rapid transit, but can be done in a lot more cost-effective manner. And really, the the reality as to why we're doing this now is 
you know, we've heard loud and clear that, uh, you know, this region wants better transportation options, wants better rapid transit. But the reality, if we're waiting to spend $400 million a, a kilometer with SkyTrain, it's going to take us 100 years to, to get to, to all the areas or more uh, that we knew into the region. But if we want to move faster and we want to do it in a more cost-effective way, we've got to look at different solutions. And, and that's why we've, we've really uh, focused in on the, the opportunities with bus rapid transit. Okay, so let's talk routes. Or what, or shall I say, where are the priorities Yeah, so uh, this past week, uh, uh, the Mayor's Council on TransLink uh, released our our 10-year priority plan that that actually identified 10 corridors uh, across the region that we thought were were appropriate for for rapid transit and that we want to to evaluate for for, for bus rapid transit there. We haven't chosen number one priority all the way through through 10. We've identified 10 really important corridors. And we're going to be evaluating each of them. And I think uh, it'll be the results of, you know, the, the opportunity for ridership, the opportunity for even new development around around these stations, but also really support in the local communities and individual cities saying, yes, we want this kind of transit and we want it faster. And those will be the types of criteria that I think will really determine out of that 10, what are going to be the first, you know, one, two, three, three of these uh, to, be, to be built in our region. I know some people will be thinking, Mr. Cote, um, why should we be taking up more space on the ground? We need more cars. What do you have to say to them? Yeah, and, you know, I think that's something we're going to have to be, be up front with here. Uh, you know, there's some aspects of bus rapid transit that will be separated from, from regular traffic, but there's no doubt there's going to be portions of, of these routes that are going to have to take up some some existing space, whether that be you know a lane of parking or uh, you know potentially a lane of lane of traffic in, in some areas to, to be able to accommodate uh, uh, this network. But I think the reality is, as our region grows, we have limited capacity to to be able to expand road capacity and just rely on the single occupant vehicle. We need to more efficiently be able to move people and provide people with different transportation options. And I think this, in a very cost-effective way, allows us to reach the region in a lot faster way in a lot more areas of the region to give people some choices. And I think if you give people transportation choices, that's what's really going to help uh, uh, help our congestion issues in, in Metro Vancouver. Okay, Mayor Cote, thank you so much for being with us this morning. Well, thank you for having me on the show. Many Canadian provinces are scaling back on their data collection when it comes to reporting COVID-19 cases. And it's proving to be quite controversial. How are we going to keep track of the next wave and variants if we have all these gaps in the data? Dr. Jens von Bergman is the founder of data analysis firm Mountain Math that's been looking at COVID data. Good morning, Jens. Good morning. Thanks so much for being on the program again. We had you on a little while ago. I'm sure you're aware of uh, the federal government and the provincial governments uh, changing um, policies with regards to keeping Canadians informed about COVID-19. Where are you seeing the gaps now? Well, I think part of what we're seeing is uh, a somewhat necessary shift in how we uh, report and keep track of COVID. We've seen that um, already with the last Omicron wave um, our capacity to count um, cases and to test really has been broken. Um, but what I'm seeing is that these sort of new surveillance systems that we would need to replace um, the, what we used to do really aren't in place yet. And that's making it problematic to really understand where we're at and where we're going and how that compares to where we came from. 
Okay, what did you mean by necessary shift, that we're making the necessary shift in terms of data collection? Well, when we realize that we can't really um, collect case data the same way where we try to capture every case, I mean, we've always undercounted it to some degree, but uh, starting with the Omicron wave, um, that really broke down completely. And um, what we need to do is find ways to still um, have a good understanding of where we're at. So some alternative ways to do this would be um, to really um, invest more in, in, in the wastewater, um, COVID wastewater um, measurements that we have. Um, that means expand them geographically, but probably also increase the frequency that, so we get a cleaner signal and also um, give out data on um, sort of important covariates that help explain um, these more noisy time series and um, like wastewater data. Can you expand on wastewater so that we understand it better? What do you okay, mean yes. so, by monitoring it? Where are we monitoring it? And what does it mean? So um, when somebody gets infected by COVID, what we've found is that the COVID um, the, the, the virus also enters into your gut, and uh, when you go to the toilet, it enters um, the wastewater when you flush it down. So um, between uh, when you flush and when it arrives at the wastewater, a lot of things might happen, but some of the virus still survives. And if you sample it at the wastewater plant, you get a rough idea about how much virus is out there in the community in that catchment for that wastewater plant. Um, so that gives a fairly efficient way to understand the community level spreads, not who has COVID. That's what we used to do with testing individual people, but how much COVID is out there in the community. But um, this process is messy and um, uh, literally, of course, but also just from a data perspective. And it needs, um, we need better data to really understand what's going on there. And, um, and um, we also need to expand it right now. We only have that in Metro Vancouver available. Um, to really cover other regions of the province. So other provinces are uh, quite a bit ahead of us when it comes to um, these new data sources. How so? And um, Well, they collect more frequently, have better geographic coverage over their province, just looking across the border, border to Alberta, for example. So why are we doing um, that? Sorry, say again? Why are we doing it better here? Well, I think it's something that we... Kind of, um, it seems to me that we haven't really um, put enough effort into it. Um, Alberta built, or Ontario built these things up early on, where we really haven't. Um, and Metro Vancouver, it always felt a bit like a pet project. Um, for example, here in BC, the BC CDC shut it down over Christmas, just because uh, maybe some staff were on holidays. But over Christmas was, of course, the time when it was really desperately needed because our regular testing system broke down. So there just wasn't um, really the priority given to this. And uh, this is something that we need to catch up on. Jens, I keep hearing that uh, various health groups are frustrated with the lack of up-to-date COVID-19 data. Why is it, do you think the public health authorities are, are less concerned? I don't know, actually. Um, I think that's a good question. Um, next to wastewater data, there are other data streams that we could get daily data on without yeah. really too much problems. For yes. example, hospital admissions. Right. So um, hospitalizations is something that we've always gotten. But really what's even more important to understand timeliness is the admissions, like how many people get in a day. The hospital census that we have been getting is a mixture of people that have been discharged and people that come in and sort of the difference. 
that's important too. But um, really to understand in a more timely way how things go, the admissions is a, is a much, much better signal. And we've never gotten a clean admissions data. And um, it just now we're getting them still weekly uh, with a week and a half delay, roughly. But it's just something where um, I don't understand why we can't have a daily data to give a better read on what's going on. Yeah, and I think for a lot of people, they look at how the government, the provincial government, the public health office here in BC has, you know, was handling things, for example, a year ago with COVID-19 and how serious it was and all the scaffolding that went with that to mm-hmm. now being, uh, it seems like blasé about uh, filling in these gaps in the COVID-19 data here. Um yeah, I think that's a that's a fair characterization. Um, one thing that I uh, that that really I think is important here to realize is where um, we are, we have given up on a lot of the collective measures when it comes to um, stopping or slowing the spread of COVID. So we don't have mask mandates anymore in indoor places or in transit or grocery stores. Um, there are still people. Um, I think a significant portion of the population that really does not want to get COVID. Yeah. And it becomes increasingly hard for those people to protect themselves. Uh, when they used to be, they used to rely on, you know, being extra cautious themselves, but also have some um, collective action that would help them navigate this. They could take transit, knowing that it's not just them wearing the masks, but everybody else around, so doubling their protection in some sense. Similarly, at the grocery stores, and all this is gone now. And the other part, of course, that's important when people make decisions on an individual basis uh, about their risk is they need to understand what is the level of COVID out there in the community. Right. Right. So if I'm immune compromised, um, which I'm luckily I'm not, but if I were and I was very worried about getting COVID because my risk of severe outcomes, if I get COVID is high, that's one part of the equation. Right. But the other part of the equation is I need to know what's my risk of contracting COVID in the first place. Okay. And it's the, the the product of those two that matters to me. And for the first, for that second part of what's the risk of contracting COVID for me, I need better information of of what level of COVID is out there in the community. And right now that's really hard to get. Okay, Jens, thank you so much for describing that conundrum for us and explaining the uh, data analysis to us. My pleasure. Fire crews were called to the home to a home in a North Vancouver neighborhood last Tuesday where a charging e-bike battery malfunctioned. So how dangerous are e-bike batteries? James Wilson, the president of Obsession Bikes, joins us now. Good morning, James. Good morning. How are you this morning? We're good. It's uh, sunny and glorious in Vancouver. Vancouver Sunrun's happening. I guess people will not be biking through downtown Vancouver right now. I wonder mm-hmm. what you understand happened with uh, this e-bike battery. Oh, well, as I understand it, the uh, battery system exploded, and it exploded in someone's basement. Um, I'm not sure if it started a fire, but it was very, very dangerous for everybody involved. Um, and that's what I know right now. Yeah, according to Global News, there was a, a lot of smoke. They were able to contain it, uh, which is great, which is uh, very lucky and that there was just a minor damage to the house itself. But it still had a lot of people who caught that story going, uh, how common is this? So how common is it? Well, it's the first, of my, it's the first I've heard of it in, in certainly Lower Mainland. And then when I heard the, you know, when Global reached out to ask me about um, what, it, what was going on, 
I did do some Google search, and it seems like it's a bit, in, uh, a bit of an epidemic, if you will, in New York City or places where there's larger concentrations of. The, of um, I'm not 100% sure if it's e-bikes or e-scooters through the news that I read, but it certainly seems like a problem. To some extent, one's going to go, okay, well, it's going to be a little bit more dangerous to have an e-bike just because of that aspect of having a ba- it be battery-powered when part of the beauty of a, a regular bike is that the machinery itself, the machine itself, the bicycle, it's really simple. Uh, and when something malfunctions on it, you can just get in there. Um, I can get in there. <laughs> I don't have much prowess with this kind of thing with tools and uh, tinker a bit and fix my bike. But with e-bikes, that's beyond us because of these batteries. So do you think that this story uh, is going to actually dissuade people from getting an e-bike? Think twice about it because of the danger. Well, I, th- I think that like any emerging technology or, or um you know, new product, I think people need to be cautious moving forward. And I think they need to do research. And thankfully, you know, there's um, medias like yourself that are reporting on it to help people sort of understand that they should pay attention to what they're getting. Um, I don't necessarily think that e-bikes themselves are endemically flawed. I don't think that it's bad, um, necessarily that they're bad product. But like any electronics, I think you really need to consider what you're getting. Uh, that's, That's my concern. Is there some kind of certification with e-bikes, though, that this one didn't pass? Well, again, I, I can't really speak for that. I saw some photos. I, I can make some assumptions on, on what it was. Um, the certification processes, I think, are in the, in the hands of the Canadian Federal, like, you know, the CSA or whatever for safety. But I'm not really, uh, I don't really know if, uh, like, if a char- like, these things have to be recharged. So I'm guessing that the rechargers are safe. And houses need to be safe. They need to be grounded so they have breakers so that, you know, if there is a, a short, um, you know, the power can, would shut off automatically. I think that that's the case. Where I think the, the disturbance is, if you will, is um, there's a disconnect between, say, that level of safety and what's actually going on inside the bicycle. So it looks to me on, on those photos that there was something went wrong with the batteries and the battery itself exploded. And I'm not so sure that there's a regulatory area that really fully covers that. So I think that consumers hearing this might go, well, then what can I do to prevent something like this happening if I have an e-bike? Oh my God. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of things one could do. One should immediately go to Google and just look up, how do you care for, for a lithium ion battery? And that, that leads to, you know, like, how do you charge it and all those things. So here's a couple thoughts. Um, one should not leave the charger and the battery uh, unattended. So if you're charging the battery, basically, you've got to be around the house. Um, if you're uh, unable to do that, then un- unplug it. Um, it's simple. Don't leave the charger on all the time. That would be good, right? Disconnect it from the power source. And uh, if you notice any weird smells or I don't know, plasticky smells, like it means something's wrong. And I mean, that's a good, that's a good kind of rule with anything. You know, if it smells kind of like it's burning, it probably is burning. Okay. And what about for the consumer who's been, I mean, these e-bikes are becoming so much more popular really quickly here to the point that uh, people are in a queue lined up to uh, get one, get their hands on one. So at the point of just uh, being a consumer and looking into getting your first e-bike, is there anything you can do at that point to make sure that you're getting one that's a good battery, et cetera? 
Well, for sure. And, and it's a, it's a classic consumer challenge, right? You, it's buyer beware. Um, these systems are expensive and they, they aren't quite honestly, they should be, you know, it's a level of sophistication and electronics. It needs to, you know, it needs to have a big company behind it. What uh, would be a really, really good idea is sort of vet out the people that are selling it. Hopefully it's a business that's been around for a long time. Um, if it's too good to be true, like if the price is like just too amazing, it probably is too good to be true. And it should be, you know, very much um, worried about, you know, you know, when we see these bikes, we sort of see them as a, as a solution to, you know, to our commuter problems, you know, the backups and the, <laughs> the traffic that you're always reporting on, you know, the beauty of a, of a bike is it slides through bike lanes. And so people can get home on time and, and that's fantastic. But when you look at, you know, the risks, by underbuying, you know, that, that really does scare me. Yeah. Do you know of any product recalls on e-bikes due to this kind of battery malfunction? <sighs> no, no, I don't. You know, we, you know, we're, I'm hyper involved in this, you know, we have a store dedicated purely to e-bikes and I don't know of any recalls. Okay. All very interesting stuff. Thank you for being with us this morning, James. Listen, have a great day, and hopefully you get out on your bike today. <laughs> Actually, that's the hope. <laughs> yeah, right on. Thanks, James. Thanks for listening to the Weekend Mornings with Raji Sohal podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can listen to the show live on 980 CKNW from 6 to 9 a.m. every Sunday. Have a great week.